0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here, and I am one of the pastors that gets to do this more often than not. And so uh, it's a joy and pleasure Uh, to have you here with us to open up God's Word today. Um, One of the things we say is we we come together to sit under the Word and and to worship God. And so we invite you all and we thank you all for coming to a worship gathering today. Uh, The thing about worship is, worship is the most that one can give to another. Uh, Historically, the word is used to describe devotion and and response to deity, to someone or something that's more than human, something that's completely otherly, something that is God. That's what worship is is, uh, set aside for, and that's what it is describing. And yet, in modern culture, we see expressions of worship all over the place. We see people worship uh, sweet guitars, and we see them worship uh, shoes. And we see them worship people who play sweet guitars. And we see people worship people who wear sweet shoes. And so we, th- we see things in our culture like uh, like we're not worthy and, and, and we bow down. And we just see that subtly all the time. And, and, and we give nicknames like King James to athletes. And, and we do that as a way to show honor or, or submission to the greatness of athletes or or movie stars, or, or pop stars, uh, pop icons. Um, and what we're doing is we're just saying, you're the best, and, and there's no one else that can kind of compete, and, and, and I can't compete. And, uh, but, but of course we know that mere humans, they simply can't live up to the hype. They, they can't do it. Not even the best of the best can possibly bear the weight of perfection. So they will fail to give that one more Autograph, and the kid goes home dismayed and dissatisfied, right? Or, or they'll fail to hit the buzzer beater, and and all the fans are let down, despite the big contract or whatever. Uh, or, or they 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 make the album that that flops, and and if they do, uh, if if they do, try to please everyone, and they, and they live to try to please everyone. Um, all the people that worship them, there's a good chance that their own life will be in shambles or, or on the cusp of shambles. And so we see a lot of those people whom we elevate, they, they buckle and they crumble and, and they take their own life because, because they, they're not meant to bear that weight. In fact, we might even find that the ones who we thought were the gods were actually enslaved to their own worshipers all along. No mere human can be all things it wasn 't meant to be that way, nothing in all of creation can bear divine weight <clears throat> so you you may be sitting here rightly and saying why well, i, I don 't worship athletes and and i'm I appreciate that I appreciate that you don 't worship athletes, but i 'm sure that you 've put your hope in someone and i 'm sure that you 've hinged your your heart to something, and i 'm sure that you 've thrown your joy upon a relationship or a, a position or, or a certain affirmation or a certain glance from someone. And, and when we do that, whether we realize it or not, we are, we're letting our hearts drift towards worship. And with that, we subtly attach expectation. And, and what that looks like is, uh, I, and maybe we would never say this, but but in our hearts and in our minds, I will do X and and in response, I expect Y and Z. That's what's going to happen. And, and when we bow down to the lesser, to false gods unfit to be worshipped, we will be disappointed. Our expectations will be uh, dis- dissatisfied. And, and when, we, when, we, when we find ourselves disappointed, we will pass blame on to those around us. When we live for the wrong thing, we are bound for disappointment and blame. And this has been true since the beginning. Since the beginning with Adam and Eve, and, and they sought after things other than God, and they sought to have a, a certain knowledge, and they were deceived by, by the serpent. And then then immediately after that, the, the kind of outworking is, is blame, dissatisfaction. And, and what we see is that, that uh, disappointment and blame are really the fruit of of us replacing God, we were never meant to do that. See in our culture, uh, many people think that that a Christian life and, and a more maybe a, a more biblical understanding of that would be a life in christ because that 's what the Bible calls a christian life you, you don 't see that much in scriptures, uh, but but a life in Christ, us knitting our lives to christ in, in our culture, most people I would even say think that the Christian life is, is about doing all the things. Doing all the things that, that God would ask. And, and so you do the right things, and if we're really lucky or if we're really good at doing the right things, uh, one day we will get to be in heaven, and we will get to see our loved ones again, and, and man, all will be well. That's our aim. If we do X, we receive Y and Z. And I just want to tell you that that, that is such a shallow view of what Christ came to bring, that it sells every part of, of a life in Him short. And there is so much more that God offers us, apart from, from those things. And it's not just some far-off deal, but it's, it's right now, today. To worship the one true God in spirit, And truth, it changes how we wake up. And it it changes what we see when we look in the mirror. And it changes how we view our work, the work of our hands, and and how we view our contribution, and how we view our art, and how we engage with others, and how we love. And, And it changes what we love, and it changes what we live for and it changes uh, what we give ourselves to it changes what we think about and what we build around and what we build on and what we build with and how we use all of the resources that God allows us to manage and invest it changes what we expect and it changes how we deal when those expectations crumble but sometimes our hearts they get confused in fact that happens a lot our hearts get confused and tricked and duped, and we replace that which is most important, living for God's glory and, and, and joyfully doing so all the days of our life in this life until he makes all things new and we get to delight in his glory for, for all eternity. We, we trade those things in and we replace that which is most important, and we, we aim that devotion elsewhere. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. Now, we will see this a lot as we continue to, to work through Exodus. But, but for those who don't know, uh, idolatry, w- one of the things that we do as a family, uh, the, the grams on our kitchen table, we have this little spiral thing. It's, it's the New City Catechism. And so we just we ask a question, and there's like a longer version, and there's like a kid's version, and there's like some little scripture references. And, and we just ask those occasionally at dinner, and, and, and we're kind of working through those. And the most recent one is, what is idolatry? And so we have conversations around that, right? What is idolatry? And this is what it says. It's, it's trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope, happiness, significance, and security. So when you hear that stuff in the Bible and you begin to see it in your own life, what, what it's, it's doing, it's, it's replacing God with something that God created. And, and, and it might even be calling good things God things, as we see so often. But, it, but it's, it's trusting in those things for our hope, happiness, significance, and our security. And, and what this points to is that our hearts are corrupt. And since the fall, our hearts are per, they're perverse. And what that means is they pervert good things and, and they make broken things out of them. And so uh, we, we hear that the reformers and, and John Calvin talked about the heart as an idol factory. And it's constantly wielding these things that we might behold and worship them. But they're not meant to be worshipped. And, and so when we, when we understand that about ourselves, and we start from a position of like, not our hearts are good and they serve us well, but our hearts are broken and constantly need to be redeemed and, and in submission to the Scriptures and to the Spirit and to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus so that we might die as the old man and live as the new man, when we're mindful of that, then, then what we get to see is, is uh, we, we can't simply just follow our hearts. And, and, and I don't know where you get your love advice, but if it's the bachelor, he might tell you that. And I don't know where you get it from, but, but what I would say is, is when we look according to the Scriptures, that, that's not a good thing to just follow your heart. And that's true if you're 12 years old. That's true if you're 62 years old. So, we left off last week looking at this stuff, um, this journey with Moses, and we saw Moses and his family trusting and joining God, and, and getting things in order, and reorienting their lives around God in some really weird text, right? I hope you spent some time in that last week, uh, getting the team on board around this mission that God's inviting Moses, and now Aaron, and, and the elders of Israel into, to, to deliver Israel out of the hand of Egypt and, and to deliver, to, to set the captives free. And, and then we, we saw Moses help get the team on board and, and give some alignment around what God was going to do and what they were going to do. And we didn't quite get to the rare beauty of, of unity and trust and worship that we see in the last verse in chapter 4. And it goes like this. Exodus chapter 4 verse 31. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited them and that he had seen their affliction and this is crazy. They they bowed their heads and they worshipped. It, it's significant. It's, it's not because of what God did. It's because God showed up. He was present. And, and it was because of what God was going to do. What, what God had promised to do. And in the Bible when we see scenes like this. Where everything, like you can hear like the angels like. Ah! It's like a good scene. You can just expect like a hurricane to rage in the next page and we kind of get that so so the mission was clear there was promise of victory. They're marching on. Let's do this thing. We're going to tell Pharaoh what's up and, 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 and get on with it. And they worshiped God because they expected to win the day and they thought God had, had promised them just that and, and they're going to do these, these magic trick things where they, they turn a staff into a snake and a leper's hand and heal it and, and surely Pharaoh will believe Moses and Aaron and, and let's get on with it. But isn't it funny how our hearts and our brains, they let us dismiss red flags along the way? Like, like if you're test driving a car, and it's the car that you've wanted for a long, long time. And it's the right color and all those things. And you get to test drive it. And you go and, and you might have heard something when the transmission shifted. And you say, that... Didn't... No, it's cool, though. It's cool because, like, it smells great. <laughs> it smells like the new car that I wanted. And so we dismiss things. Or when you're, when you're dating and everyone else sees it and you're like, yellow flag, orange flag, red flag. And you're like, no flag because he's dreamy. or Or... Gosh, I I just need someone. And so we just dismiss those things. And we see the same thing here that that God had already told them. Look, this is not going to be easy. Like, Pharaoh's going to have a hardened heart. And listen, Moses, he's going to tell you no. He's going to say, no, I will not let the people go. And I will compel him with a heavy hand. They seem to have forgotten that. So, this sermon is is chunked out in in two chunks. Three observations. We're going to walk through the text, right? And then we're going to have three considerations to help us apply the text. And so, uh, not just three, but just three, but just twice. So, sort of like six. Um, Three observations. So, we're getting a handle on the text, right? So, here's what's going on. The the first thing, we're in in Exodus chapter 5, the negotiations begin finally. Moses gets to... He knocks on Pharaoh's door, right? And and this is what happens. I'm reading 5, 1 through 3. And and by the way, this is let my people go. So if you've been looking for that, like this is it, all right? Uh, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. This is probably a deeper voice. That they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Remember, that was the ask. That That they would go away and sacrifice for three days, but... But God just kind of blows that whole thing up, and he's like, fine, I'm just going to <laughs> I'm going to take them. Well, we're not there yet. So, so anyway, he so says, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And then they add this little thing that, from what we can tell, God never said this to them. So I'm not sure if, where this comes from, but it says, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. All right? So th- that's what we have. The, the negotiations begin. Pharaoh doesn't know it, but he asked the right question. All right? One that everyone in this room and everyone who's ever lived, they have to ask the same question. Uh and, and even if we don't ask it, and even if you never supply an answer to it, by your negligence, you've already answered it. It's one of those things, right? He mocks the weakness of, of the God of the Hebrews compared to the greatness of Egypt and, and his own power, and you can't really blame him. Uh, Pharaoh is, in his own mind, he's God. He's, he's a sort of God under some other gods, but, but he's at the top of, of human order. And, and, and so he's probably like, let me, let me get this straight, um, so you've been in, enslaved for hundreds of years, and now your God is hes coming to pick a fight with me? Like, I'm going to take my chances, and, and I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a big, uh, big no, big, big solid no on that one. And so, but he asked this question, who is, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Now, if we play like a little bit of bingo, not the type with the cards, but, but the song like B I N G that type, and we just cut off the back line of this. He asks this question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And if we go one more round of bingo, and we cut off the last two things, he says, who is the Lord? Which really is the right question. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We see that all throughout the scripture. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What that means is that, that our mouth reveals our heart. And and. Uh, the question reveals Pharaoh's posture towards who God is and what the nature of any God is. But, but certainly, who is this God? Uh, and this is what he says. He, he shows that he is no different than most Americans. And his question is this. Who is God and, and what does he demand? Who is he and what do I have to do? So, so when he says that, Pharaoh was himself a god in his own mind. So so his lordship shows up in the only way that he knows God's interact with humans, through demand, that that he will put demands on them. And and then we see the second thing. So that's the negotiations. Didn't really go well. Then we see the second thing is is back to your burden. So now we see this verse 4 through 19, this long kind of discourse and interaction between Pharaoh and, and basically he says, get back to your burdens. Get back to your burdens, this is a no-go, it's not going to happen, and this is what we, what we see. Spend time in this this week, I'll give you the overview. He says, uh, he says there's no rest for you. He says, why, why are you here? There are many people out there, and when you're here, they're not working. So they need to be making the bricks, because we have to build the things. So, so he says, uh, get back to your burdens. And, and in fact, you have to continue to make the same number of bricks that you have been making except for we're not going to uh, supply you with straw. And so he, he basically says, uh, you know, the supplier that we use in northern, uh, well, we're, we're, we're going to call them and tell them not to deliver the straw anymore, and, and that's on you. So you've got to figure that out. But, but the same number of bricks. Now, Pharaoh doesn't tell them directly. This is where we get to understand a little bit of, of organizational stuff, right? So he tells the taskmasters. The taskmasters tell the foreman. Now, now here's the deal. From what we can tell in this chapter, we have Pharaoh and, and maybe some servants around him, a council. We have the taskmasters. They're Egyptian, and they're the ones that make sure that everything's functioning properly, upper management. Then we have this middle ground. These are the foremen, which seem to be Hebrew. And then we have the slaves doing the work. So we have slaves, foremen, taskmasters, Pharaoh. And then the middle ground is where this stuff kind of fleshes out. Pharaoh does it's just common uh, industry standard and tactic that we use today. Uh, when you have bad news to deliver, have someone else deliver it. And so he tells the taskmasters, "Hey, all right, tell them no, and also we're not giving them straw." So that's what happens. And then the taskmasters come to the foreman, and they say, "Hey, how are the numbers today? Where are the numbers? Like you hit your quota, and they're like, "Not even close. We can't even find no straw." And so they beat them. That that doesn't go over well with the foreman. The foreman then bypass their superior, middle management, right? And they go straight to uh, the owner. They go straight to Pharaoh. And they say, Pharaoh, uh, how could you treat your servants like this? Remember, these are Hebrews. How could you treat your servants like this? Um, The the taskmasters have, have beat us because we've not been able to do this. But here's the thing. It's their fault because they told us. That we couldn't, uh, no longer get straw. And Pharaoh's like, oh, they told you that? Wow. He didn't say that. Um, and so, so, uh, so Pharaoh responds, and, and he says, uh, this is what he says. I'll read verse 18 and 19. He says, go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And then this is great. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So this, they're like, we, we knew we were in trouble. So so it gets better. And so then, then the last few verses, we see this idea. Again, these are just observations, um, the negotiations, and back to your burdens, and then we see disappointment and blame. And so I want to read the last four verses, starting in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who are waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. Now look, you, you just might imagine that, that Moses and Aaron are like hanging out in the bushes, and or maybe they're like trying to look in the window, and like the curtains, ah, like we can't see what is going on in there. Like I bet, like I'm just guessing, I bet God is blasting them right now. I bet that when they come out of here, they're going to have the keys to the caravan and we're going to march out of here, just like God said, with Pharaoh's stuff. He probably gave us gifts. I wonder how much money he gave us. I wonder if he gave us that, uh, you know, that, that uh, serpent snake head that he has around his head that's all gold. He, he might have even given us that. And so, like, they come out of the bushes and, like, what did he say? Like, are we doing this? Like, the, the cars are warmed up. We're ready to, to join the exodus out of here. But that's not, that's, that's not what happened. This is what happened. This is what they said to Moses and Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And have put a sword in their hand to kill us. That is not what they expected to happen. So Moses is like, what's that? And then he does this. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Curses upon you for making us look like fools. That's what they say. In like Shakespeare, it would be, A plague on both of your houses. Right? That's what they say. And, and so, so what we see is, is the foreman blame Moses and Aaron for making them look like lazy, uh, foolish, stupid people to Pharaoh and, and his servants. And by the way, Pharaoh calls them lazy repeatedly. He's like, You don't want to go away to worship. You just, want, uh, you just want to stop working for a minute. Get back to your work. It would be like somebody saying, I don't work on Sundays. I'm a Sabbath guy. And people saying, Yeah, right. Like, you're going to work every Sunday. It's, it's exactly the same type of thing, and so so uh, if we go by their words, though, the the foremen blame Moses because they look stupid to Pharaoh and his servants. But if we go by their their own words, it seems like the real problem might be that that the foremen were Pharaoh's servants, and we only see that because that's exactly what they said to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, why would you treat your servants this way? These are Hebrews, and the maybe it would be the like the equivalent of a union rep for the slaves. And so they get some interaction with with the salary guy just above them. So we see Moses do what he should have been doing all along, and we, we process this stuff in staff meeting the week of, and so me and, and Matt and Scott get to interact with this and say, I, I don't know, like I've got six days to figure it out, right? And one of the things that Matt said was, uh, we see it's interesting that, that Moses, he does what he should have done all along. He, he turns to God. He finally turns to God. You say, this is good news, but but what comes out of his mouth is not such good news. When he, when he does, he blames. He says, why have you done this? Why have you sent me? You're ruining everything. And this is nothing like you promised. Here's the thing. I know you felt that way before. I've felt that way before. And this is what I want you to know, is, is God can handle your raw, unfiltered heart. Like when you're at the end and you just don't have answers, and you're like... And you start sorting through, and you, and you, might, you might pray something that sounds real subtle and safe. God doesn't want you when you're just subtle and safe. He is fine. He he can handle you raw and unfiltered. And we see it in the Psalms like crazy. We see it in Job. We see lots of the people who suffer cry out. It is okay to do that. He he isn't afraid of you, and you shouldn't be either. The beauty of this, though, is that over time, when, when we... Uh, take our thoughts captive, and we mature and we become sanctified, and we look a little more like Jesus, and what happens is, is our desires and those things that want to come out of us, even disappointment, they, they, they submit to the truth that we know to be true. And so we'll see that later on with Moses, and, and we see growth along the way, but, but on this day, he's not very happy, and he lets God know about it. And, and at the same time, Moses' expectations are shattered because they were false to begin with. God, God has been nothing but honest. And the crazy thing here is, is the blame in all of this, it flows in the wrong direction one by one until finally it's God's fault. Instead of all at once in unity towards the real villain, the real oppressor, evil which fuels Pharaoh's heart and fear and oppression and all of those things. So now that we have a handle on what's going on in this text, we, we get to let the text get a handle on us a little bit. And, and I, just as a way of reminder, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. We believe that to be true. And what we believe about the scripture is that it's not written to us, it was written to a, a, a people in a particular context, in a particular city and place, and all those things, but it but it surely is written for us. And so it it transforms us. It is the word that changes us. And and that's all of it, even the weird stuff like we looked at last week, and and even this today. So now we're looking at three considerations to let the text kind of Uh, begin to to transform us. And the first one is this. False gods are cruel masters. Sure, on the surface, Pharaoh, he's just a bad guy with a wicked heart who thinks he is uh, God or a God and and he oppresses everyone around him. But if we peer just under the surface and, and we see kind of the currents that are driving those things, we see a bit more of each of us in all of this. So Pharaoh, he misses on some finer points of his theology. Like, um, like understanding who the one true God is—that's kind of a big deal. But he gets a few things right. We've looked at this over the last six weeks. This this saying in Second Peter two nineteen: For whatever overcomes a person, that he is enslaved. And we see that all over. We are slave to that which we worship. And if that which we worship is anything less than all-powerful, all-knowing, completely, holy, utterly good, this God of love who desires that all of His creation worship Him because all of creation is best, is most satisfied, is most full and, and completely alive when it worships Him alone in spirit and truth. If we worship anything less than that God, then we miss in the most disastrous way. Everyone worships. We were made to worship. Worship is a good thing. It's a natural thing that flows out of us. We were made to do it. We were made to give ourselves to something, to delight in something greater, to live for it, to give allegiance to it, and to obey it. What is, uh, who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Because it, it changes everything. That is the question. Everyone in this scene is, is a slave. Pharaoh is slave to, to fear and public opinion and his thirst for more, or his fear of losing what he has. We see the taskmasters are slave to Pharaoh and his counsel. We see that the foremen are slave to productivity and deadlines and quotas and maintaining a little bit of leverage, leverage that they have over the, the non-union Hebrews. There was no union, but you get the idea. We see Moses and Aaron, they're slave to the masses, which is why Moses leads this thing, and everyone's on board. We're talking uh, between 700,000 and and a million and a half uh, Israelites. We're not talking a a camp of 40 people. And so when Moses was doubting, and and he's like, I'm ill-equipped. Yeah, he he is ill-equipped. So, so when the whole thing comes and the leadership says, all right, let's do this, and then it crumbles, is like, you are... Nacho Libre would say, you made me look like a fool last night. That's what... So so, Moses and Aaron, they are slave to the masses and to what they think about them and what they think about God, but here's the thing. Their real chains come from their expectations. And the fact that their expectations in how this insane story was going to unfold was going to be God working through their design, through their time. To Pharaoh, he's enslaved to a cruel master, one that leads to him fearing loss of power, and and that fear presses down on others, and, and he might think himself slave to no one, guarantee he would think that. God of the Hebrews, I'm, I'm God, don't you know? So, so he would consider himself slave to no one, but, but he's insecure and he's fearful and he is slave to public opinion just like everyone else. In fact, if, um, if Disney meets Pharaoh, the result would be Aladdin's Jafar. And I know we talked about his scepter last week, so I'm just going to ask if I can talk about him one more time and I won't talk about Jafar next week. Um, so Jafar, he thirsted for power. And he wasn't the sultan, he was just under the sultan. And, and he thirsted for power in fear of losing that, the power that he had. And, and, and fear and power, they dance when he gets, when he gets the lamp. He steals the lamp and, and he rubs it spoilers or whatever. Like, just you can step out if you don't want to hear this. Um, uh, and, and he gets the, he gets the genie. That, that's what he wanted, right? Finally someone to serve me and I will use his service and power to, to make me the most powerful. And so he's tricked because Aladdin's kind of talking smack and he's saying, that's great, but the genie's the one actually doing the work and you're always going to be less powerful than he is. And he's like, I got it. I want to be the most powerful. That's my wish. I want to be the most powerful. You want to be a genie? Yeah, yeah. But, but he didn't know that when he became the most powerful, when he became a genie, it came with a catch that even the most powerful being in this sliver of Disney universe was slave to whoever rubbed the lamp. Like Pharaoh, when he is most powerful, he is still subject. He he is still subject to to rulers, right? To, to To the masses and to appeal, and, and the only reason that he can claim power is because people give it to him. And he doesn't know it yet. But Pharaoh is also subject to, to the one true living God of the universe. But he will find that out soon enough. So the twisted allegiance and thirst and and insecurity and fear and power and all those things, it all catches up to everyone in in this room in chapter 5. And and everyone's disappointed, and that disappointment produces blame because false gods are cruel masters, but the living God, the living God gives rest. And so we see what what Pastor John Piper talks about in desiring God, that, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And for for many of us, that's common language. but, But if it's not, I just want you to think about that for a second. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. Not doing all the things, but when our hearts are satisfied in who God is, then that is when God is most glorified in us. We were made to give God glory. And unlike Pharaoh and the, taskmas- the taskmasters, the living God, he offers rest from work and he offers rest through the work of our hands. So we see Jesus time later. Come along and, and say this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, and just to be clear, Pharaoh is, is a chump compared to the power in the hands of this Jesus who says that. He's the creator and sustainer, the redeemer of all things. He, he, he knits DNA together and flings galaxies into the universe. And he says, me, I, I, I am lowly in heart, but if you come to me, I will give you rest. Not demand, but, but rest. And so, so I, I read this week that um, God made man at the end of the week so that he could enjoy God before accomplishing anything. Just like the first full day with God was, was Sabbath. The writer of Genesis knows that. And, and, and the onset of this book, he's, he's punching in the face the, the power hungry rulers that we see in, our, in and around us and, and in the pages of this scripture and inside our broken hearts. Augustine says, Thou hast, it was some time ago, so he used weird words, um, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts, are, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. But but Pharaoh, he he says more. And and the taskmasters, they say more. And public opinion says more. And quotas and deadlines say more. And and man-pleasing says more. And expectations say more. This world demands more. But in Christ alone, we find rest. And what we see is, is God in these pages, there, there's one God. I am the one who is present and the one who will be, the one who will deliver the Hebrews from the, the hand of the Egyptians and the one who will deliver you from sin, hell, and the grave. The second thing we see is, is false expectations are not failed promises. And we talked about this a bit last week, but, but uh, God has not failed What has happened is only what God had had said would happen. So so God said that the elders would uh, believe him, that that Aaron would get on board and and he would speak on his behalf, and and that happened. And God said that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and that he would not listen to Moses, and he did not. God said that he would have to extend his hand to compel them, and, and we've not seen that yet. And yet the people begin to turn against Moses and we see this pattern begin and it, and it repeats time and time and time again. And, and, and when the people turn against Moses, then Moses turns against God. Expectations, they're funny that way. They, they control us in incredible ways. If you want to make someone angry, uh, give them something that they don't expect. In, in the drive through give them the, the order of the person behind them. It's the subtlest thing. Because you know what? I expect... I, I'm American. I expect that when I place my order 35 seconds ago, I give you all the money, and you're going to give me a, a hot meal just as I described. We're constantly filling in details with expectations. And most of those expectations that we plug in throughout moments of the day, they are slighted in our favor. We just expect them to benefit us. So when we fashion expectations that idols can never deliver on, and when we assign promises from God that He never promises, what happens is we blame but but when we know God and we remember his words and we trust him for who he really is and, and for what he has said, we can fashion realistic expectations and we can resist the urge to blame. The last thing is this: rejection gives birth to rejection. It's all over the faces of everyone in this scene. They're rejected, they feel rejected, they perceive rejection. And it causes them to reject and blame the next one down the line. In these hearts, we see this game where disappointment and blame, they're just passed around like a hot potato, but but here's the deal. Jesus, he did not blame. Instead, he took responsibility for, for what wasn't his to begin with. That's what Jesus came to do. He came and he trusted God. And and when things got difficult in Jesus' life, when he was rejected, insulted, abandoned, forsaken by by everyone that he knew and even the apostles that he had spent three years with and he told them what was going to happen, when they carried Jesus away, everyone bailed. When that happened, Jesus didn't blame he didn't blame them. He didn't blame the people who were killing him. In fact, he pleaded that God would not blame them. He endured faithfully, trusting God's way as the best way. And, and, and that faithful endurance cost Jesus deeply. And at the, at the time of his death, people cried out, prove yourself and be free. If you're a king, show us that you're a king. If you're God, show us that you're God. Prove yourself And be free. But Jesus knew that to prove himself, it it wasn't freedom for him, it was death for him that you and I might be set free. That's what Jesus came to do. Not from. not, not from the, the cares of this life, but from being overcome by the cares of this life. We still get to engage and we still get to, to live in this broken world, but, but we get to overcome the cares of this life and the demands of this life. And he willingly took blame as our substitute to free us from blame and the condemnation for our sin. And, and all of this circles back around to this idea of worship and this idea of expectation and acceptance. See, rejection breeds rejection. But acceptance by the one, the the only one worth worshiping it brings satisfaction that can endure even the biggest disappointments that this life can throw your way. So when we live for the wrong thing, we are bound for disappointment and blame. But in Jesus Christ, you don't have to search And you will never be rejected because he took the blame. So what that means for us is that our job is to know God rightly. To remember what he has said. That means that we get to sit under this and we get to store this in our heart. To protect us from our hearts. All the days of our life. We get to know him rightly, remember, encourage one another. And we get to trust what God has done. And we get to trust what God has done will do. So just as some reflection, uh, are the things of life obligations or are they opportunities to give God glory? I know what they are, and I'm asking you to reorient your heart. Are all of the things that you have to do today, tomorrow, Monday morning, everything that just flows into your, uh, your mind before your head leaves the pillow? Are those obligations to prove anything? Or are they opportunities to give God glory and to join Him in the work that He's inviting us into? Do you live to work? Do you work to live because it's, it's quite different? Are you captive to the opinion of others? Do you see them as, as people that you might serve. When you think of God, is he expecting more from you? I, I meet with a, a guy regularly. We asked this question this week, when you think of God's face, what does it look like? And I'll ask you that. When you think of God's face, what does it look like? And, and this is what we said. Well, we this is what we said. We said, "I know that he sees Jesus in me." But then as we kept talking, what became aware? Uh, what we became apparent was, th- but that Jesus looked like uh, a, a cardboard cutout that, that we just moved, that God's like, yeah, I see Jesus, but yeah, that's the real you, and it's pretty disappointing. And I said out loud repeatedly, so so let me say back what you're saying. God's disappointed in you? No, not disappointed. He just knows that I could do better, and da 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 da. da it sounds like the face that you see God making at you. Is disappointment. Because I know that's the face that I see when I think of how God sees me. All this, it changes that. He's not yet, yeah, God doesn't dismiss Christ's work like we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know he makes me righteous. I know he accredits to my account righteousness before God. And he and he gives me the inheritance of eternal life and, and forgiveness of I, yeah, yeah, yeah. God doesn't say yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what he says. That's enough. That's enough. So we get to respond. And we get to pray. We get to we get to ask God to to undo us, to do work inside of us. Right? And and we want to pray with you. And I'll be back by that red tree. There will be another few by that red tree. There's a prayer bench over there. You can kneel. You can sit right where you are. You can stand up and sing with the band. Who get, You guys can come on up. But, but here's the thing. W- we want to pray with you about anything that you might have going on. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. We would love to bear your burden today. You, you can respond by, by joining the family. And you might fill out a connect card and, and let us know that you want to know what it looks like to, to follow Jesus in this way. You might want to commit to this family. You might want to, to start serving or, or, or giving or any other way that you can contribute to what God's doing through the village. And 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 today we get to take communion. And this is for God's people only, those who trust Jesus for their identity and life before God. And we take the bread and the cup in remembrance of Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was spilled on our behalf so that we might be set free. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Holy Spirit, thank you that you undo dumb stuff that I say and you, you bring to bear things far beyond any power that, that any of us have in our words. Would you undo our hearts today? Would you recalibrate them to, to not be a slave to any of the voices or the things around us, but, but to you and your righteousness? You're good and we thank you for, for Jesus, for the presence of your spirit. May we live for your glory, and may we live understanding that that our chief end is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.